I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning playwrights. We're back with part one of the solo show Mixtape by playwright and performer Zorana Sadek. So Chris, back in the day, did you ever make a mixtape? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I actually still have them here in the studio. I can pretty well touch the box from where I'm sitting right now. You hung on to them all these years? Sure. Yeah, I, I've got tapes with everything from Rocky Horror Picture Show to In Excess. I, I don't have anything to play them on, but but I still have them because they're just such a sentimental part of my childhood. Yeah, that's the thing about mixtapes is if you aren't a Gen Xer, you might not realize the power that these tapes had. It was a way of expressing ourselves through our particular taste in music, and we'd share it with the significant people in our lives. I remember trying to get my boombox to record my favorite songs, and then hours after work, it would snag on the machine, and the whole tape would rip, and I would lose <laughs> that dreamy Paul Young song. Oh, yes. Zarana Sadik has captured the magic of the mixtape in her play, which is a melody of a memoir, a musical recital, and a scientific inquiry. It's her very own personal story about her life told through sound. This is part one of three of Mixtape, written and performed by Zarana Sadik. What instrument did you first play in grade seven, like in, in band class? Trumpet, trombone, sax. I ask people this question a lot, and I can usually tell by the way they say the name of the instrument, whether they had some choice in the matter or whether it was assigned to them. Sax. Trombone. It's, it's a different kind of relationship when, when you choose it. So... I have this memory, I mean, it can't be true, but somehow I remember a top hat in the music room classroom and all of the instruments that we could pick were folded up in little pieces of paper in the bottom of that hat. And somehow, guys, I was at the end of the line and I had some intel that there were two remaining instruments in the bottom of the hat, trumpet, God forbid, and flute. And I reached my hand into the bottom of that hat and I picked flute and the course of history was forever changed. So 
in public school. I auditioned for a special enrichment band camp thing, and I get one of the spots in it for flute. On the first day of the camp, we are stumbling through one of the more tricky sections of a piece. We are making lots of mistakes, and smudges of seconds instead of thirds are fucking up the harmonies and interrupting some of the wide-open music with the vaguely bovine sounds of wrong notes, offered and hastily retracted. In response to our less-than-stellar read-through, the conductor, a man who is both kind and searing in his pursuit of the music, does two things I will never forget. First, he lectures us. In school, if you answer just over half of the questions on a test correctly, you will receive a passing grade. In music, 50% accuracy would mean that two out of every four notes in a 4-4 bar are incorrect in some way. 100%. A hundred percent is required for music. And then he has us raise our instruments and he instructs us to mentally play the entire five-minute piece, shaping the notes inside our minds to make the musical thoughts without making a sound. He gives us the upbeat and he begins to conduct. And I hear it, all of it just as I would like it to sound. I hear the fast-running 16th notes just as they should be played like laughter. I hear the tone of my flute rounded and in motion like busy, deep water. I stay there in that imaginary world with my fellow phantom orchestra players for five whole minutes while the conductor holds us together with the moving of his arms and the precise bounce of his baton. He conducts to the end, he takes a breath, and then he raises his arms to begin the piece again, and somehow we all know what's expected of us. He gives us the downbeat, and we all play the piece, this time out loud. It's an act of fulfilling something, to pay all of our attention, to tune out any distracting static, and hone in on those five lines of the staff. I remember being in that moment and the feeling of kind of obsession just sliding into place. But also this, if I had no beautiful, perfect idea of what my flute line sounded like, then the mental rehearsal would have been useless. It was just there, somehow floating around inside my imagination like a kite right at the moment I had needed it. And I wasn't sure how, but I felt the soft, prodding hand of it. In my childhood bedroom, there's a kind of bay window. I can sit on the ledge of it, pull the white Swiss dot curtains closed, and make a little private sort of domino-shaped place for myself. It's just a thin curtain that seals off the ledge from the rest of the house, but it does the job. If I put my nose to the glass of the window and sing into it, the sound fills up that space like it's the Sydney Opera House. I must look like some hummingbird from the driveway of our house in the suburbs, face hovering close to the glass. I sing little songs into the window pane, and they get served right back to me. The glass is like a mirror, but for sound. 
I emit those rounded coos, and they're a kind of nourishment for me, like dippers of warm soup. In my house growing up, sound exists in fits and starts, often muted, until it's not. Dark, greenish-brown carpet, wood paneling, an open-concept house that is closed. I have always been obsessed with sounds. And when you're small, you have little control over what you hear, except for the sounds that you make yourself, of course. And so I make sounds of my choosing to wallpaper the house up in lush, rosy things, you know, thrilling things sometimes, or sometimes just the incantations of hungry exploration. There is a lot to choose from. Duran Duran and yodely sound of music sounds and a, a kind of scat instrumentally thing that is particularly satisfying and silly. Wah, 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 wah. It's uh, something that earns me my class clown status for sure. I am the second daughter my parents have, five years after my sister, a distance that seems large when we are children and small when we become adults. My father is an accountant, my mother a writer. And we'll get to her later. So here's what's on the musical menu at my house. On the 8-track in the family room, my parents play Neil Diamond, Leonard Cohen, and Cat Stevens. Neil Diamond's album, The Jazz Singer, which curiously is not jazz at all, has captured my imagination. I sing his banner song, America, into the top of a hairbrush, wearing the pink nightie with the yellow cap sleeves that my mother has sewn for me. It's riveting. He looks a bit like my father, Neil Diamond. They all do, but also don't at all. You know what I mean? Leonard Cohen, in the meantime, is sort of droning away, and the songs are sad, and tea and oranges all the way from China seems like something you should be really happy about, but clearly, he is not. Also, I'm pretty sure that's talking, and not singing. My mother loves Leonard Cohen for his words. His poetic intellect. I don't think she even hears his voice. I think it's like she sees surtitles on the wall of our living room when she's listening to Suzanne. My father wants to be Leonard Cohen. In that way that, you know, I want to be Annie. The record player upstairs is sort of the realm of the female, actually. Mostly my sister's records and my mother's. There are not a lot of women on the 8-track downstairs, except for the tantalizing thread of Barbara Strazan's vocal on You Don't Bring Me Flowers Anymore in her duet with Neil Diamond. Do you remember that song? That song is a lot of things for me. It's a time machine to the parquet floors of the family room, to the small amount of space I took up as a child, to my wishes for my parents' unhappy marriage to the recognition of what feelings sound like when they become music notes. I think Barbara and Neil confirm my suspicions that music is the place where grown-ups can still make the sound of how they feel. The only place. It seems really romantic, this impending breakup of theirs. They each kind of meet each other in the song, mirroring the other's phrases like figure skaters. It's heartbreaking 
how much they obviously love each other. I mean, that's how love goes. Each person having their say and the other listening. Listening is an act of love. When we are brand new humans, we cry because well, that's the only sound we can make. And so we use it to tell everyone how we're feeling. But then we are expected to shape those sounds into language. So at first, the words come fast and furious, blowing fiercely through the thin stencils of the letters, always before the beat, speaking before you think, you know, feeling while you speak. But you can't do that forever. That, I hate you! Or that, no, no, no! That we used to do. Or even turn to a stranger on the bus and say, I'm so lonely I could die. When we grow up and become reasonable, well then we are expected to sort of leave behind that song part of the words, flatten out that melody to a monotone, and just speak. I hate you. No, no, no. I'm so lonely I could die. But at the end, when we're making our big exit, I think we might meet those eloquent melodies again. Because they say that when someone is on their deathbed, in that space between living and not, that sound is the last thing they're aware of. So what they're not sure about is if they can understand and process the language. But the streaks of pitches, rising and falling, caught and released, that is getting through. I think it might sound like whale music to them in their liminal, underwaterish state. Far away, but familiar. I got a double cassette player for my birthday. I could record from one tape deck to the other and make mixtapes. Remember those? Okay, so here is the big dividing question. Were you, if you made your mixtapes, when you made your mixtapes, more of a wait for the song to come on the radio person or a tape to tape kind of mixtapist? I think in truth, I was a little bit of both, although slightly more of a radio person. And so if you were too, maybe you also had an intimate relationship with the top 10 countdowns. There I would be, seven o'clock every night, one finger on the play button, one finger on the record button. I don't know why it was two buttons, but anyway, it was to just get the beginning of Take On Me. It was almost like you were, you know, cutting the album as the artist, I mean, like decorating your locker. Your mixtape could show people who you were and what your taste was. Remember how sometimes the tapes would get caught and then the ribbon would come spooling out like like intestines, like the innards of the cassette. And it seems so innocuous, that brown plastic tape, almost impossible to explain to aliens, let's say, that when you fed this tape through a machine... Your memories of the family road trip to Sault Ste. Marie came bounding into the present tense. As when you remember a song, you remember your emotional response to it as well. You feel it again. Remember Stairway to Heaven, and you may remember the sweet panic of the last song at a school dance. 
Can you think of the first song you played over and over again? And I don't mean once or twice. I mean, you could fill up a solid hour type of thing. I imagine all of you listening right now and your favorite songs popping up like thought bubbles in a comic. And you can still hear it, that song, can't you? Do you know that to comprehend sound, our brain makes an echo once in our mind? That's how we remember and make sense of sounds. We sort of sing them back to ourselves with our inner voice privately. Yeah, the other senses, sight for instance, they can also hold information in the brain, but for about an eighth of the time. And that's because the eye can scan and rescan an image multiple times very quickly, but the ear only gets one shot. So we keep the sound in a little holding pen for up to four seconds. Right? If you forgot everything as soon as you heard it, then the accumulation of notes that form a melody or the string of words that form a sentence would be impossible to comprehend. So auditory information is stickier. It's more tenacious. I have a little theory that I've been working on. Maybe you can tell. I think that the extra time that the sound gets up there kept in the brain gives sound a leg up on the other sense perception, so to speak. If we could open up our memory bank, you know, split it like a pomegranate, I think that what would surely fall out would be the voices, the barks, the of the alarm clock, the sound of your best friend's stifled laughter, the front door opening, Kenny Loggins, The Danger Zone, all really lodged in there. In our inner tape recorder, it's always on. Even when we're sleeping, while every other sense is taking a nap, it will wake us up when there are bears just outside the tent. So, over a lifetime, hearing has the most experience. It's the most senior of the senses in terms of hours worked, always storing up the sticky tracks. It's a theory. An org chart of the senses. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm 11, and I have been singing louder and louder into the window, getting jazzed by the power of the bounce. I can feel the sound vibrating against my back molars. I'm hungry for a larger shoebox, and I've developed a habit, which I still do when I'm in a large space, of clicking my tongue against the roof of my mouth to get a read on the space. And when I determine that it is big and pingy, I ache to fill it. My middle school does musicals, these sort of made-for-elementary-school musicals, and one year I land the lead role and I get to sing a big, ballsy solo song, and I fill the auditorium with my sound. Before the play, my mother, impeccably done up in a white jumpsuit, leans over me while she does my makeup. 
My mother is beautiful. She looks a bit like Cher. And also doesn't at all. You know what I mean? I am not officially allowed to wear makeup until high school, so this little window I'm getting backstage is special occasion-y for me. She uses her Chanel lipstick on my lips, and with the tips of her fingers, works it into my cheeks like a blush. On my cheeks? I ask. Yes, baby, it's the perfect shade. Hot tip. A powdery blush and foundation are for old ladies. Ghastly. Never cover up your skin. I feel proud. My mother has the air of an expert about her. My sister has already cut a swath of success through the school plays before me. We're like a middle school musical dynasty. Like the Kennedys. I have always held the creative act in high esteem. If I'm honest... The more creative a person is, the smarter I think they are. Like if someone says something to me like, oh, I was never very artsy or creative. I take that as a confirmation of a certain lack of spaciousness in their brain. I know it's, it's snobby. I know, but I I come by it honestly. It was modeled a lot at home. I'll give you an example. So once when we were in the parking lot of our local McDonald's, two boys on bikes called my mother a fucking packy. I was scared. Oh, no, no, not of the boys in their plaid shirts. No, no, no. Worried about what tirade my mother would unleash on them. As I stood there, rooted to the spot, holding my Happy Meal, the red paper handle cutting little slits in my fingers from my death grip. And here is what she said, not a comment on their behavior, their rudeness, their racism. No, my mother said, while your ancestors were crawling around in the mud, mine were blowing glass. Or maybe it was, while your ancestors were rubbing sticks together, mine were blowing glass. Anyway, it was the blowing glass part that was key for her. Mm -hmm. Like, take that, you know, that knowledge will make you what? Stop playing your vanilla ice tape and hang your head in cultural inferiority? It was badass, there's no question about it, in a somewhat eclectic, highbrow kind of way. Not what they were expecting, that's for sure. But I was uncomfortable with what she had said. It reflected a worldview of hers. My mother saw people existing in an either-or construct, excellent or mediocre, And I wasn't sure what was in the middle there between those two opposites. I mean, clearly she was on the glass-blowing side with her exquisite taste, her almost personalized engagement with anything beautiful, her fiery opinions, which were like proclamations. And those became like some kind of original sound in my makeup. Let me explain. I thought I was hearing voices when I was a kid, or that I had a split personality maybe, because there was a sound, like a film score almost, that I sometimes heard in my mind's ear. One frequency low and fat, the other high. They very rarely sounded by themselves, often overlapping and interrupting, and then punctuated by pregnant silences. I know it now to be the abstract contour of my two parents' voices arguing. They fought in the house all the time after we went to bed, drag them out style. 
But I know for a fact that the instrumental version of their fights, that memory, that comes from when I was still in the womb. Do you think that's crazy? There's just something about the quality of the sound. It had a muffled, waterlogged essence to it. Oh, and I could hear it and feel it. It was so particular. My mother emitting spools and spools of power from her mouth, the pitches rising up in waves, and my father's threats, almost inaudible, like the sound of a halting typewriter during a tropical storm, and his silence marking out a taut duration between his ineffectual words and eruption into physical violence, actual attempts to shut her mouth. Those attempts added new orchestration. Percussive bursts of footfall across the hardwood, the glass cabinet doors rattling nervously, the whole house like some shuddering cart. The bleated upward urgency of my older sister's pleading to protect my mother and then my imitation of her beats later, like a fugue. How can I explain to you, though, that inside all of this, she held the true power. My mother, with her expert, rapier words, triumphed over my father with his clumsy elephantine might intolerable to him that she could be so exact with her verbal aim, so masterful with the concoction of her insults. And the shouting. Shouting is remarkable not just for its volume, it weaponizes sound. The consonants enhanced for their hardness chopping the airflow, and the vowels distended so they can hold the anger and outrage in their open container. I can't shout. My voice closes up on me like the top of a balloon. I think it was an enjoyment for my mother to take me along with her on her various capers, to see the beauty in a coffered ceiling of a grand old room, or to accompany her to the houses of her flamboyant artist friends. Once, we visited a woman who lived in a gorgeous home with potted lemon trees and a library with books from the floor to the ceiling. She and my mother sat in the adjoining living room and caught up, and I looked at the books, enjoying the feeling of being in what seemed like a palace. I was my mother's daughter, after all, primed to receive beauty at any moment. And I suppose... I was stretching out and up in that space, reveling in the cool slip of the marble floors under my considered footsteps as I surveyed the books, flipping slowly through their pages. Large books that didn't fit into ordinary shelves about Karsh's photographs and Sheila's paintings. I was into it. I overheard them talking about me. Her friend was praising my poise, my gestural grace. 
I sidled to a concealed spot behind a lemon tree to be closer to the glow of my mother's response. My mother said, It's an act. She's just trying to get your attention. And I glumphed away with the sound of her words ringing in my ears. That was part one of Mixtape. Parts two and three are available now on Play Me. The play was written and performed by Zorana Sadik. The director of the theatrical production was Chris Abraham. The music and sound design were by Thomas Ryder Payne. Mixtape had its world premiere at Crow's Theatre in Toronto in 2021. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.